0: Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author-in-residence at Midwestern Seminary. We are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history. It's greater than the First and Second Great Awakening and every revival in our country combined. But in the opposite direction. Yet precious little rigorous study has been done on the broad phenomenon of dechurching in America. Jim Davis and Michael Graham have commissioned the largest and most comprehensive study of dechurching in America by renowned sociologists. The great dechurching takes the insights gleaned from the study to drill down on how exactly people are dechurching with respect to beliefs, behavior, and belonging the book gives the church in america its first ever deep dive into the d church phenomenon you'll learn about the d church through a detailed sketch of demographics size core concerns church off-ramps historical roots and the gravity of what is at stake and then you'll explore what can be done to slow the bleed engage the pertinent issues winsomely and wisely and hopefully re-church some of the d and here to talk about this new project the Great de-churching who's leaving, why are they going, and what will it take to bring them back Our authors Jim Davis and Michael Graham. Brothers, welcome to the For the Church podcast. Thanks for having us, Jared. Good to be here. Yeah, so there's some things about this book, I think, that are going to be really eye-opening for folks, not the de-churching phenomenon in general. I think most church leaders are familiar with that and aware of that and seeking to, to the extent they're able get their minds around, if not their arms around the challenge. But I think some of your findings and and some of the ways you approached those findings would be pretty eye-opening. But I thought we'd just sort of take a couple of steps back first and wonder if you could each kind of just give us some background on yourself, on your ministry, so our folks know who we're hearing from. Jim, if you don't
1: mind, just, yeah, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and 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 your ministry. Sure: yeah, I pastor Orlando Grace Church, serve on the TGC Council. We have a podcast that we do. My wife and I, um, well, I say we Mike and I and a team of other people have as in heaven, that we have kind of a season on a topic examining the topics, honestly, that are interesting to our church. All of this work has been based out of our local church. We've not had any, any idea that it would any of these projects would become larger than our local church, but my wife and I also uh, speak for family life in their weekend to remembers and she is a counselor in orlando we both went to reform theological seminary in orlando and we have four kids that are 16 14 12 and nine man well done in getting those names i
0: have two daughters and i would get their ages
1: <laughs>
0: i forget how old they are i want they change them to every be, year yeah that's right i want them to be eight and six forever but uh, they're 22 and 20 so
2: michael tell us a little bit about yourself brother yeah, so I have, my background is largely in pastoral ministry, had some brief time outside of that in finance as well, mainly in the operations side of pastoral ministry um, as executive pastor. Was in that role for about a decade at Orlando Grace Church. And then for the last year, I've been working as the program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, which is housed underneath the, the Gospel Coalition. Like Jim, went to um, did my MD at RTS Orlando. Married to my wife Sarah, and we got uh, two kids. We're five and six. Five
0: and six, man. So a handful. Michael, I recall the first time we met. Do you remember the first time we met? I think it was the first time we met, which was at the Gospel Coalition in Orlando. And my wife fainted. We did well. Yeah, that's what it turned out to be. Was dehydrated, but we thought it was a more serious medical emergency. And you were the the first person to come over. I don't know if you were volunteering with the conference at that time. I mean, this was over ten years ago. I think it was probably close yeah, to fifteen years ago.
2: It was either twenty eleven or twenty thirteen. I want to say. Yeah. I think, or it could have been twenty fifteen. I can't. One of those three. It was in Orlando. Yeah, I was on the security team. Yeah. So as as a volunteer, she's <laughs> like. <laughs> It's just straight faint. It's Like I, I just been trained on you know what, like how to do the 911 call for for that. Um, okay, it was complicated. You had to like call the, you had to call the, you had to make the the venue call because there was like complex ways to instructions that you had to give the ambulance. Oh my <laughs> so, words. Yeah, I
0: mean she chalks it up to uh, she had come straight from Vermont where it was cold to Orlando it was warm and she hadn't had enough fluids and. Just, But what I remember is Michael was there to save the day. It was uh, a wonderful introduction to you. I wish it had been a little more pleasant meeting, but been great before you ever since, brother. Guys, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what prompted this collaboration, maybe about what prompted digging into this issue, but why you two and why you two together on a project like this. Jim, if you don't mind answering, maybe.
1: Yeah, this is the fun part for me, because when I came, I grew up in Orlando, we moved around the world for 15 years, came, we we were in Italy for a little bit, uh, five years and moved from one foreign country to another went to Oxford, Mississippi. And, uh, and we then came back to Orlando. And we were really doing cultural exegesis. So Mike was the executive pastor there at the time, we're working side by side. And we saw a Barna study that came out in 2018 that talked about how Orlando had the same percentage of evangelicals as New York City and Seattle. And that really just, that really got our attention because Orlando, as you know, feels very different than culturally than New York City and Seattle. And we were wondering, just thinking about that. And in the study, it also made the claim that 42% of the Orlando metropolitan area used to go to church, but now no longer does. And so that's when we started thinking, oh, well, that's why it's different because a lot of these people who aren't going to church, they still carry with them biblical values. In some cases are Christians. And so we wanted more information, but it wasn't there. And so the two anecdotal things that that really drew me to this project, one, my wife was taking apologetics with Justin Holcomb at RTS at the time, and she wanted to do a research paper on de-churching. And he said, great, but there's nothing to research. I can't let you do that paper. And then the second one was, so that was the data side, but on the more human side, I was speaking at a, a donor event for a global ministry and Max Licato was opening up and for it. I gave like a 10 minute talk before he did on deep searching, and Max gave this awesome message and he just did a great job. And afterwards, there was this line of people to talk to me and, and I look over and in a surreal moment, I see Max grabbing coffee by himself. And, and I was like, what is going on? This doesn't make any sense. And then it hit me as I hear story after story. It's not just data. I'm talking about people's children and grandchildren, and it was deeply resonating with them. So we wanted to find this data. Uh, there was no book in the picture. It, we were mostly going to do it for our church and our podcast. And we were able to raise uh, about $100,000 to commission. Dr. Ryan Burge, a social scientist and Christian, and then he worked alongside Dr. Paul Jupe to do the largest nationwide academically peer-reviewed study on the topic, which is one reason that books don't get written on this is because you have to pay $100,000 before you even know what the data is going to say. And our hunch was we are currently in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country, and the data proved it. And then so we did two more studies understanding why people are leaving, where they're going. We did a deep dive on evangelicalism. And so really, all of a sudden, we possess this data that doesn't exist anywhere else. And then so we hadn't really thought about making it a book, but publishers started coming to us and we thought, well, this would be a worthy project for our attention. And Mike and I are such a great team because he is he is a data guy. I mean, he really loves spreadsheets. That was a real learning curve for me. Um, and so I'm you know, i more on the pastoral side. Not that Mike isn't pastoral, but that's just his strength is data. Mine is not. And I, we just make a great team working together.
0: Michael, tell us a little bit about the study itself. What, what went into those those spreadsheets? Where the hundred thousand dollars go? What kind of questions, what's the the meat of um, the information you guys are trying to collect?
2: Yeah, so you do successive phases in these studies because you don't necessarily know in the beginning where you need to zoom in. So, you know, that's why you do multiple phases and where you start to see things that look really interesting and, you know, that look like they're worth zooming in on further. Um you just don't all do it in, you know, one kind of fell swoop. So, yeah. So that's why there's kind of interesting, you know, greater granularity on certain things than others, you know, being, you know, evangelical pastors, we we had greatest curiosity about what was going on among the 15 million people who had left evangelical churches in particular, you know, why did they leave? Are they willing to return the ones who are under what conditions would they be willing to return, you know, and what, what are the animating concerns in all directions? So, in the third phase of our study, we had about 600 unique data points that we asked each person. And stuff gets really expensive. If you, if you want that kind of granularity, you're talking about, you know, I, I think in that phase three, that was $14 ahead, you know, for that third phase. So, um, and these are surveys.
0: How, how are the questions?
2: Yeah, so, so this, is, this is quantitative surveys. So this is done through the same you know, Fortune, you know, publicly traded, you know, corporation that does all the other surveys that you'd see, whether it's, you know, stuff like this, that's sociological in nature or stuff that, you know, Fortune 500 companies, you know, are the, it's Qualtrics is the, you know, is the corporation that does that. They are the gold standard for quantitative surveys and so forth. So you are
0: amassing this data, were there thing? There's things that you're looking for. There's hunches that you have. What were some of the well, let me approach the question this way. I think for most folks, if you ask them about the dechurching phenomenon, they would have uh they would come to the conclusion or they would have the assumption that a lot of it is liberalizing culturally, the sort of ex evangelical kind of, you know, phenomenon itself, people leaving for theological reasons. And I'm sure that's not a um, I'm sure that's not a, you know, an entirely a myth, but there's some things that you discovered in the study that were eye opening, I think. And, and so I wonder, Jim, if you could share some of your findings, what findings confirmed your hunches and then what were some things that you thought, oh, wow, we did not expect that to be the case.
1: Yeah. So we confirmed the largest and fastest religious shift. The previous religious largest shift was the 25 years post-Civil War. This shift, in terms, you've addressed the numbers already, but in terms of percentage, it's twenty five percent times greater. That go in the other direction, but really, what what was interesting also to us, we had this hunch that you know, if you were, if you only listen to certain maybe left leaning Twitter pundits or the New York Times, that you would think everybody leaving the church has done so, deconstructed, not a Christian, angry at the church. And and our, our anecdotal experience wasn't that. Certainly that they ha- there are those stories and we, we want to be sensitive to that. But at the end of the day, we felt like people were dechurching more casually than what we call casualty. And in fact, the number one reason for dechurching in the United States we found was I moved. And we were we were really interested to see that over half of the 15 million evangelicals who had dechurched were willing to come back today. We can drill down more on the the algorithms that we use to be able to understand this data and create different different profiles. But there were some profiles that were 100, there was one in particular, 100% willing to come back today. Their orthodoxy scores were higher than those who still go to church. It seems like they are still Christians. They really just need a nudge. And so Mike and I, in our own personal ministries, when we, we look you know, because the D church person is not monolithic. We want to understand who it is that we're talking to. And when we can identify what we call a mainstream D church evangelical, there's 2.5 million of them in the United States. Every time we've been able to identify them and invite them back to church, they've come 100% of the time. So that was really interesting. And then there's just an the inverse relationship between... Education and dechurching really did surprise us. The high, the more education a Christian has, an evangelical specifically has, the more likely they are to continue going to church. So, so this kind of gets after the the boogeyman of higher secular education. As only three percent of evangelicals in our study with a master's degree have dechurched, and I will say Ryan Burge has gone on to do a lot more research on that, but the the data just overwhelmingly supports that education is not our enemy. It's actually our friend. So those were some of the high level things that that really stood out to us. I'm sure Mike has some other things. Yeah, I mean, I think the simplest way I can put, you know, Jared, you know, kind of going into this
2: study, if your media diet leaned a little bit left, yeah, the, the story was, you know, churches scoring our own goals on themselves because of, you know, racism, misogyny, abuse, you know, Christian nationalism, these kinds of things. If your media diet leaned a little bit to the right, the story there was, well, people are largely leaving church because of the culture, secular progressivism, the sexual revolution, these kinds of things. And it's not that either of those, you can't find examples of both of those things occurring. Both of those things are occurring. They're real phenomenons. And, you know, we're talking probably a few million people that would fit, you know, each of those particular stories. However, the, the biggest story that came out of the data is one that's really boring. And the really boring story is that most people left church kind of unintentionally and they left lackadaisically and they left for really boring reasons like I moved or attendance was inconvenient or I left because of, you know, divorce, remarriage or some other family change or things like travel forward. Okay. So the, when you really drill down the lion's share of people who left, left because of just the inertia of American life. And that really just boils down to rhythms and habits. So in addition to that, some other things that were just kind of surprising, de-churching definitely disproportionately impacts those who are of lower income or lower education. And the currently the secular right is de-churching at twice the rate of those who are on the secular left. Now, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that could be said about, well, you know, the secular left is probably already left, you know, starting in the mid nineties to present. And there's probably a, a lot of merit to that. But, um, and so the secular right is just kind of catching up to that phenomenon, but there's definitely, there are definitely a lot of people either way who used to go to church where politics. The, the, the politics flag was probably always flying higher than the Jesus flag, and that can be found anywhere on the spectrum or horseshoe or, you know, whatever you want to call it um, from the political realm. So those were some other things that were kind of interesting, noteworthy, surprising. So, yeah.
0: You know, from the pastoral angle, when you describe that the reasons people leave or the, the predominant reasons people leave is a kind of inertia brought about just by the the rhythm of America, you know, suburban culture, just American culture. I moved travel sports. I have a different lifestyle now, those sorts of things. Aren't those at their core, even if those people are ticking the, the boxes of orthodoxy, isn't that still a theological issue? I mean, what is it, if we dug deep into say the previous church experience, what were they discipled or catechized in as it relates to what church is and the concept of church membership or covenant or just a theology, you know, their ecclesiology, isn't that itself a theological problem? Or are these people who are like, oh man, I'd love to be in church. I really wanna be a member of a covenant community. I just don't know where to start or something like that. What does it say about just sort
1: of the embedded beliefs, I guess? It is 100% a discipleship issue. We, we, a few years ago, there was a, a mom, she's a friend, our kids play on sports teams together. She's a Christian. And she, she said, "Ask me if our church would ever have a Sunday night or Saturday night service. And of course I'm thinking with four kids in my home, I would not be qualified to leave that service, but uh, not that there's something inherently wrong with a Saturday night service. But I asked her, why, why do you, why would you want that? And she said, well, I've got three kids and eight sports leagues, like five are travel Sunday mornings, never open, but once a month we could do a Saturday night service and so it was an issue of prioritizing in their life that, that comes from discipleship. And so we've been thinking more in our own context, how, how are we discipling? How are we discipling the value of being a member of a local church, of the value of congregational worship? You know, why is it? I get asked this all the time. I'm a Christian. I have a Bible study. I do my quiet time. I pray on my own. Why is that not enough? Well, the church is clear. If they're asking that question, the church is not giving those answers. And I think in, in, in an era when it's harder to get people to commit to church, we begin to ask for less instead of more. And so this is where the Coldplay and a TED Talk entertainment kind of church develops with a discipleship ceiling that's going to be very low. And I, I would be the first to admit those churches are easy to enter. The front doors can be wide, but the back doors tend to be just as wide. So we we talk a little bit about walls. You know, you, you can go well the walls around the church, we we would call it membership. I mean, other people will call it other things, but the concept is that. And so you have, have some some churches that have gone to one extreme and the walls are too high, kind of protecting their people from the sin of the outside world. And it can be a little more cultish, but what we're experiencing probably even more are just no walls. And there's, and when there are no walls, there's no membership, there's total anonymity, there's no care, there's no discipleship, there's no calling our people to what God calls them to. And actually, it comes all the way back to the decline of the mainstream in the 1960s, when I think it was Douglas Kelly wrote the book, something like Why is why is the uh, the conservative church growing and his conclusion was well the mainline is asking too little of their church and and conservatism is asking more and that's where people are finding satisfaction and joy and i think you could apply that now instead of as much to the mainline but to the our more entertainment attractional driven friends and i want to be the first to say i'm not doubting their hearts i'm just questioning the methods yeah i mean
0: some of that comports with you know, I remember reading years ago just some of the stuff, like from Mary Eberstadt and others, about the the stricter churches were the one in, in in New England in, in particular, which is you know, my area of missional focus. This, it was the stricter churches, so called, that were growing, and the quote unquote liberal churches that were in decline in a liberal area, which was I think counterintuitive for a, a lot of folks. Let me just ask a little bit about the politics thing because you you sort of mentioned that on on either side, it's not really a major factor, or, or unless I misheard you, but are there people leaving because of either the church is too political or the church isn't political enough? Was your study done prior to sort of the, you know, Trumpism phenomenon or, or post that, or what are the implications of how we're sorting through, you know, that factor? And, and it really kind of dovetails for me, my, my interest in asking the question is evangelical, the term has become in some respects, a political label as much as a theological or, you know, religious cultural label. In fact, recently, I just saw, you know, results of a study in, in New England where in Vermont in particular, which among the six New England states routinely ranked number six in terms of the, you know, percentage of, of, of evangelicals. And that has, that number has doubled and they've actually gone up. They're now the number one New England state. So they have the highest percentage of evangelicals of all six New England states. And and in the span of 10 years, this happened. And so there's a lot of sort of, you know, celebratory, you know, hey, the mission is working. But cynically, I wonder how much of that are people saying, yeah, I'm an evangelical because they see it as a political term. How does that, you know, fit into y'all's findings? Michael, if, if you don't mind speaking to that.
2: Yeah, there's, there's like three questions here. I'll try to answer them systematically. Um, so, politics definitely plays a role in dechurching. Certain. so, and this is where, you know, don't rely just, you know, on the substance of this, you know, just this brief part, podcast episode. You really do need to, you know, get the great dechurching book. You need to read the books. Yes. Yeah. You need to read the books. You need, and specifically, you need a lot of, a lot, you know, we go into tremendous detail on six different profiles of, you know, four different types of D-Church evangelicals. And then uh, there's a mainline profile and a Roman Catholic profile in there. And you really need to have granularity on, on each of these because they're all very, very different. And so what animates some of those profiles is more political than you know, some profiles are more political than others and certain profiles are deeply allergic to political syncretism, political syncretism being the idea that, you know, you don't necessarily know where politics kind of begins and ends and where religion starts and stops. And, or, you know, in, in most instances of political syncretism, the concern there is, is that politics is, you know, is more important than the gospel itself. And so for the ex evangelical BIPOC, mainline, and Roman Catholic profiles, all of those profiles are deeply allergic to political syncretism. The ex-evangelicals are most allergic to political syncretism. 58% of them self-identify politically as, as being political independents, both of them having deep disdain for either of our you know, our, our two, large, two large parties in our political system. And so that's definitely a lesson to be learned, I think for, for everybody, regardless of, you know, whether you're in a red state or blue state, red city, blue city, you know, all of those different kinds of things. We definitely don't want to have anything have, have superior affection in our hearts and in our institutions than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think people are right to be, you know, to have their, their feathers ruffled when those things kind of get misaligned and so we definitely want, you know, the gospel of the kingdom, you know, the kingdom of Jesus is more important than the kingdom of America. And so for, for many people, that's kind of a, that's a deep concern. As it pertains to the definition of the term evangelical, you know, obviously that's a kind of a, a hotly debated, you know, topic over the last several years. I think in different contexts, that term evangelical does mean different things. I would like to keep the term because I think it's a, it's a biblical term. And I think especially the, the global usage of the term is helpful. It's less helpful in the United States. You know, if I'm talking to a, say a deeply secular, you know, neighbor, you know, in my community, well, I'm probably going to say I'm Protestant or Christian or Baptist depending on their level of awareness of those things. And, and that, you know, that's fine. But you know when I'm in a circles like this, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm an evangelical pastor. The, but what's interesting, though, in the data and Ryan's written on this, you know, Ryan Burge has written on this extensively. You know, you have like some ridiculous percentage of Muslims who's, <laughs> who, when app, ah, are you evangelical, will say yes on surveys. And that, that really tells you that, you know, the term in on Main Street has has really taken on some new meanings. And so those are some things that we need to be cognizant of in terms of how we navigate the usage of that word, particularly when it pertains to our interactions with people who are not theologically oriented. And then your third question pertained to when our data set was acquired. And so that was at the very end of 2021. And the very, so the Q4 of 2021, and then Q1 of 2022. So, you know, we're beyond, so all of our data on you know, it's all post-January 6th and all of those different kinds of things, as well as all the contentious nature on, you know, national conversations on race, national conversations on Trump, and national conversations on, you know, the surrounded uh, COVID and the, ver- the variety of re- reactions that people had to, you know, to all of that. So all of our data came after all of those things, even the war in Ukraine had already began. Well, I mean, that
0: kind of introduces my next line of inquiry, which is really, you know, how did the pandemic play into or how much did the pandemic play into the findings and, and, and the research? I, you know, there's a number of pastors I know and, and, and you know as well, I'm sure, who will say things like, you know, our church has just not recovered since the shutdowns. And, and you know, that's anecdotal, of course, but it just seems to be a recurring refrain. Have we, you know, did the pandemic exacerbate the dechurching phenomenon or I'm sure it didn't help, but is it not a significant factor and if people come back and that sort of thing?
2: Yeah. So this is where like me, Jim and Ryan kind of have some interesting intramural conversations with each other. <laughs> okay. If Ryan were here, he would say that COVID and the impact that it had on people's habits with respect to church is overblown. However, the highest years that we've ever experienced in the dechurching phenomenon did occur, did occur, you know, during COVID-19. Now, in terms of people who only one of the six profiles did COVID-19 make it into the top 8 reasons why somebody dechurched. And that was the mainstream dechurched evangelicals. These are the people who look very regenerate they ha- they hold to Nicene Creek level christianity they dechurched on average about 3 years ago but when you take covid-19 out of the picture the total number you, you just take those years out of the picture you're you're talking 37 million people who have dechurched instead of you know 40 million and i would say that most of the people who dechurched during covid-19 They didn't list it as a top reason for ultimately why they why they dechurched. And so I would say that COVID-19 certainly didn't did pastors no favors. Okay. And it created a lot of complexity. And particularly for those of us, you know, who very much value ecclesia of the, you know, the gathered church and who were technology light, you know, pivoting to, you know, live stream and all that stuff, you know, depending on. And depending on your state, sometimes, you know, that was weeks, but in other places that was, you know, a year or more in some states. And so I definitely think that that didn't do us a lot of favors. So I think for many, you know, in many contexts, it was hard to kind of regather the church, you know, after, you know, after people are, you know, it only takes 30 days to form a new habit. And so, you know, I think even in the most Even in the most red states, you know, your lockdowns were still like six weeks. So you already had enough there to kind of reset everybody's rhythms and habits. So it definitely didn't help. But I think there's I think there's dangers when we talk about COVID-19 and its impact on dechurching. to make either too little of it or to make too much of it. I think the reality is just a little bit more complicated. But the the profile that it hurt the most was the the mainstream evangelical you know, who just kind of, they really do seem to miss church. The Holy Spirit seems to really be at work there. And these are the people who are the low, lowest hanging fruit to kind of return because 100% of them are willing to return. They want to return. They seem like, you know, the spirit is active. But I'll tell you this, Jared, we, we can, I can say this empirically. The longer somebody is out of church, the more the, their Nicene Creed level Christianity and orthodoxy, it erodes. That's not entirely
0: shocking, I, I wouldn't think. It's, if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like the pandemic, if anything, kind of was a factor for people who already had kind of had a foot out the door, perhaps maybe they would list it as a factor, but not a major factor. I think, you know, also anecdotally what I hear from pastors and, and kind of what we've experienced at our own church, we didn't lose a lot of folks during the pandemic, but the ones that we did didn't de-church my knowledge, they went to another church eventually when things opened back up. And it was sort of like, oh, these are folks who are kind of already looking to leave. And the pandemic kind of was, you know, us just shutting down, I guess, was the impetus to say, to, you know, for them to make their exit. And it sounds like maybe that's kind of the case for some of these other folks as well. Let's sort of now transition just to some takeaways, right? So we've got a lot of pastors and and Christian leaders who are listening. What should they know? What should they do? What are some you know, applicational conclusions that they ought to make Jim moving forward, Just having let's say they're going to get the book, they're going to read the book, get the data, get the information. What do you want them to know? What do you want them to think and do moving forward?
1: Yeah. So well, let me start by saying the book is written more right, with an individual relational kind of feel. And Mike and I did create, there's a website called Dechurching.com. There's a toolkit analyzing the back door, the front door, sending out the equipped, it's a, fr- there's a free resource and then there's a paid resource. And so that is designed to be more institutional in nature. We just didn't, ha- that was beyond the scope of the book. But for, for us, the things that we're really looking at is when are you most at risk of dechurching, when we're looking at the back doors? so uh, moving that's the largest you know that's the largest category in orlando we're on the receiving end of a lot of the moving so how do we mobilize the the first responders of sorts the school teachers school administrators realtors who are christians to see that this is a big part of what god could use helping you bridge the gap when someone moves on the sending side of moving i would really encourage churches to stay with their people until they find a church help them to find a church. Because even though it doesn't feel like there's often value for you and your local church, there's a great kingdom value. Another season of very high risk is the ages of 13 to 30. And so that's going to be obviously for most people, high school, college, establishing your young professional careers. So we have been really rethinking how we invest in our youth. We're, you know, we have. A lot bunch of colleges in our town, but we've kind of started with those who are already here. So coming up with a comprehensive discipleship strategy that we will employ to come alongside the parents, not to outsource it from age one to age 18. When are we going to begin to have, when are they going to learn about. Studying the Bible on their own, praying on their own, sexual ethics, identity issues, biblical theology, systematic theology, and I have to give a lot of credit to Rooted Ministries. I know you're familiar with them, Jared. They, they've been a huge resource in helping us think through what does it look like to have an engaging discipleship, you know, gospel centered ministry here. And we've been reaping a lot of benefits from that. Trying to you know, and becoming a single parent again, talking about the back door. What, it's just a huge factor because especially when you get into the lower education lower income bracket that causes people to have to work longer hours more unusual hours and we want to we just when someone becomes a single parent however that happens we want to immediately be in their life and seeing how we can minister to them and then the last thing i'll say is i've really been and i've kind of already said this but really been preaching more and in our, we have a comprehensive discipleship strategy that addresses head, heart, and hands. We've been just drilling home, like why the church, why worship, why memberships, why how, how has God created you for that? And the illustration that I use to, in the book, when I was a missionary in Italy for five years, and sometimes we would be able to go on a on an army base. And, you know, you're you're not just technically on U.S. soil like it feels like it if there's a Taco Bell and there's a pizza hut and free refills with ice in there and the police cars make the right sound. And it's weird because you're like thousands of miles from home. But in that moment, even though, you know, you're far from home, you feel like you're home. And that, like, that's what corporate worship is made to do when we gather and sing and celebrate the sacraments or ordinances or whatever word is most comfortable to you. God's made us for it. And it's a part of the way that he fills us and sends us out into the mission field. That's a great word and a great word to end on. Do recommend
0: the book, The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? What will it take to bring them back? It's available now wherever good books are sold from Zondervan Publishers. Co-authors are Jim Davis and Michael Graham. Thanks so much, brothers, for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. As always, dear listener, if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.